Welcome to Book to Where Two Guys Study About the Books They're Reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Olivia Snudden. Four for four. We reviewed four books in July, the biggest month in horror in who knows how long, and we've interviewed <laughs> all four authors. So uh, what you're about to hear is an interview with Stephen Graham Jones. I'm going to give you the bio, then we'll cover some other stuff, and then we'll get to it. Stephen Graham Jones has been an NEA Fellowship recipient, has won the Jesse Jones Award for Best Work of Fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters, the Independent Publishers Award for Multicultural Fiction, a Bram Stoker Award, four This Is Horror Awards, and has been a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award and the World Fantasy Award, and probably some kind of award for the only good Indians. He is the <laughs> Ivena Baldwin Professor of English at the University of Colorado Boulder. I should I added that part. I don't want anyone to think that like <laughs> Stevens like popping this stuff into his bio. So that that part about the only good Indians was was all me based on my feelings of the the book. That would be some publishing hubris to put that in your bio yeah. before the book even or as the book drops. <laughs> yep. So before we get to it, um, I want to mention um, a couple of things. First of all, thank you to those of you who did indeed subscribe and leave some comments and stuff over the last few weeks. It's been great. We're going to ask you again, if you're not already subscribed on whatever platform you're on, please do so. Feel free to drop us a line. Um, it really helps get these uh, these great authors and these great books out to other people. So we appreciate those of you who have done it. If you haven't, we will appreciate you as soon as you do. All right, so what you're about to hear is our interview with Stephen Graham Jones. We talk mainly about The Only Good Indians, but we sprinkle in a little um, Night of the Mannequins because that's a book that's coming out uh, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, but in addition to that, um, as we've done with Zoya Stage and Josh Mallerman, um, Stephen stuck around to talk spoilers about The Only Good Indians, um, Night of the Mannequins, uh, and then it kind of devolved into talking about slashers and stuff, and, and it got kind of out there like the, the other ones have as well. So um, to have access to that, anybody supporting us on our Patreon at any level can can listen to these spoiler additional interviews with uh, with authors. So um, definitely go to patreon.com slash booked, sign up at any level for the spoiler interviews. If you also want spoiler talk about books, that's at the $2 a month or more level. And now that I got done asking you for all your money, here is our interview with Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen, thanks for joining us. It's really, really been um, too long since it we've has. done this. It has. I'm so happy to be back, man. Thank you for having me again. Um, first of all, I want to say congrats on the launch of The Only Good Indians because I think it's about a week ago now uh, since it's came out. So congrats on that. And I noticed in a tweet that I think it was at launch or maybe before you were already into multiple printings. So what's, what's up with that? Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. I think well before it actually launched, it was in its second printing. And then really soon after the launch date, it went into its third printing and who knows, maybe it'll do more even. I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's kept around pretty well. Word of mouth, you know, and booksellers are hand selling it. They say so it's all good. So does that, <laughs> So when you get into a second printing before launch, is that just yeah. is that basically based on pre-orders from bookstores and like pre-orders on Amazon? Is that how they make that determination? As far as I understand, it is. Yeah, yeah, like just copies that are already sold. You know. Excellent. Well, we talked about the only good Indians for probably about forty-five minutes, but we'd like to give our listeners a little refresher. So if you could uh, hit them with you know your uh, your take on what the only good Indians is in your own words. Yeah, and the only good Indians, four guys are out in the field one day after elk up on the um, Blackfeet Indian Reservation in northern Montana. And they 
screw up. You know, they make a decision that should have gone a different way if they were thinking right. And they take some milk they shouldn't have taken in a place they shouldn't have been. And fast forward 10 years and they think that all is pretty well, but turns out somebody's been holding a grudge about that. And they start getting picked off one by one. And there's a lot of basketball. I think we're definitely going to end up talking about basketball at some point <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because that's definitely something it's an element that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but it does have, and, and here I, I'll, uh, I don't know if you're aware. So I said this on our podcast. So last year we reviewed a book by Fred Venturini called the escape of light and oh. basketball is heavily themed in that book. And so my comment about this book, the only good Indians was, He's so lucky that came out in 2019 because he owned <laughs> basketball for us for that year. If it had come out against this book, it would have been, especially with stuff that happens later in the book, it would have been a real, real hard fight. Uh, nice, nice. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna probably jump around a little bit, and obviously we're gonna try not to spoil anything, at least not here. But we're gonna have a little spoilery conversation later. But one of the things about the book that um, I thought was interesting was kind of the unique approach to perspective. So there's different sections and in each section you're following different people from the group. Um, and it's, there's definitely kind of an evolution of um, we're following Lewis, who's is this is his individual self in one part. And then to the part after that with Gabe and Cass and Denora. So um <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what my question is, but like, what was the inspiration for telling the story kind of broken up by people's perspectives like that? You know, I guess inspiration would probably be a Gertrude Stein class I took when I was working on my doctorate at Florida State from a guy named Ralph Berry. And in that, we read Gertrude Stein's book, Three Lives, which is basically three novellas that add up to a novel, kind of. It's the Three lives means it's the lives of these three different women. And somehow that just adds up to a novel in a really cool way for me. And it could just be that I come from slashers, and slashers like to come in trilogies or franchises, you know? <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I've done it before with Demon Theory. Demon, Demon Theory comes in three parts. And um, it's really hard for me not to do everything in three distinct parts. I have to only let myself do that every few years or it's going to become like something that's no longer surprising, you know? Well, it worked very well um, in the only good Indians. And I, I think that's interesting because if you do it every few years, no one expects it, right? If you did this all yeah. the time, we'd, yeah. we'd have gone into the book or those of us who have read, yeah. you know, quite a bit of your work expecting it. Um, I saw this. So I, I vaguely wondered about this when I was reading the book and, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I, I saw in a review that somebody had also asked the question, um, you feature a um, like a weird fantasy story in, inside of the Only Good Indians as yeah, a series yeah. of books that someone is reading. Yeah, is that based on something? Is that another story idea you have? Like, where, where did that come from? If I were gonna write a big fantasy series, I think it would probably be a big. It'd be like that. It'd be locked into a mall, you know, and there'd be elves and you know all the paranormal creatures or the fantasy creatures skulking around on their separate missions their conflicting missions if i if i were going to do fantasy so i guess what i'm saying is i'd probably do urban fantasy i've never i've only done very little like real fantasy real second world fantasy 
it's it's always tricky for me. It tries to turn into horror, you know. Um, but yeah, the I would call this like the Andy series or something, you know. Andy the Mammoth Rider, Andy the Water Bringer, just all the stuff that Andy does. He's the hero of that series, and um, I mean, it's to me, it's kind of like. I don't know if you put all the fantasy novels you have in the sink and soak them in water. And then this is like the Andy series is what you'd find at the drain like two days later. You know, it's the distillation or the, the trash or whatever. (laughs) I I mean, I, I I honestly, it it was, it was a little intriguing. So I don't know if we should encourage you to go there (laughs) or, or, or not. Yeah. It, you know, you, you probably noticed that it was also a mall that was probably set around 1988, 1989, which is the last time I used to hang out at the mall, you know, because um, there's like an Orange Julius stand and there's some of the places I used to know, you know. Um, well, the interesting thing about malls is they, they I don't want to say they don't exist anymore, but they've 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 changed significantly. There's a mall <laughs> near me that they're converting part of it into condos like, you know, they just don't wow. have the mall business. So yeah, they're they're giving up like a third of oh. it to condos. Yep. Oh wow! Yeah, so the mall the mall is uh is yeah definitely uh becoming a relic and and quickly. Yeah, it's yeah. honestly it's becoming scary. Like I don't know. So like because they're so empty. I went to uh, I went to a movie theater that was attached to a mall in um, like Cupertino, California, a few years back. Oh. I, I can't remember what movie I was going to see. I think it was Alien Covenant. That would be the right time. Uh, so it's attached to a mall, and it's literally one of like three businesses that are functioning in this massive mall. But you had to walk through the mall to get there, and you're just seeing empty, empty like storefronts and like so much darkness that I feel like it's becoming a stage, a stage for for scary stuff. Wow, I mean, like Dawn of the Dead or um, Chopping Mall. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. we can remake those in these empty malls. You know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, I haven't thought about Chopping Mall in probably thirty years, <laughs> but I started watching. Oh, um, oh, what's it called? There's in a four-hour. Yes, in search yes. of darkness. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm almost halfway through it, and Chopping Mall yeah. came up, and I was like, man, I yeah. had, like. Yeah, I put that out of my memory probably thirty-five years ago. Oh no, I know. Yeah. Wait, that's like a big ass documentary on like Shutter or something, right? Yep, yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. Shutter, yeah. and it's, it's like a four-hour documentary about movies for for the eighties for anybody who's listening. But so there's general talk about horror movies in the eighties, and then they go year by year and pick out a couple of movies to talk about. It also made me realize that in the eighties, every year had at least like two or three Stephen King movies, which I guess I yeah. never really thought about. But it yeah. seems like an awful lot when you put them all together. Yeah, yeah. So far, it's made me realize that I need to watch the stuff. Somehow, I'll never watch the stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna. That's that's on my list of things to watch instead of rewatching the TV show Justified another time. Um, oh, that's 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 one of the best shows ever. I think Justified. I we're gonna have to have you on for an entire Justified discussion <laughs> at some point because yeah, yeah. Livius like almost shames me for how much, uh, but. I, that's my so I just rewatched the entire series like last week uh, because yeah. I have it on in the background while I'm doing work at home. So yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I have, like Raylan, Raylan yeah. and Boyd's Raylan and Boyd Crowder's like story. It's it's like one of those brother stories where one ends up on the wrong side of the law and one is a lawman, you know, and just such a it, it feels like um like they they knew where they were going at the end of the series, 
the yeah. whole, from the very first episode. That's really impressive. Dude, all right. So I'm going to go into this because like I finally have a mind that'll appreciate this. Um <laughs> so much so that uh there's one thing that I didn't notice until I was watching the show over and over again. Um there's this there's a, it was like the first I think it was the first episode of the series or one of the first episodes where someone says something about his hat and he says uh-huh. I tried it on and it fit. Uh-huh. Which that in the very last episode um, spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen Justified, which went off the air five years ago. Um, in that last shootout, he kills the guy, takes his hat, and then the next time the hat comes up, he says, I tried it on and it fit. Yeah. Which to me <laughs> says that that first hat that he had came off someone he killed. Like, yeah. so, like so the callbacks yeah. and the way that it all ties together, I thought was just fantastic. Oh, it is so, so amazing. Man. I've read a lot of those justified scripts too, just trying to learn where the magic is. You know, they're really good scripts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh man, I liked you a lot before this episode or before this interview. <laughs> I like you even more now. <laughs> well, what's um, really impressive is they took all of that from one short story and expanded it into yeah. yeah that's yeah. that's good stuff. That really is, yeah. Which that was also impressive because I recently read Fire in the Hole, the the story that the show's mm-hmm. based on. And that story was so good that that first episode, they didn't need to do anything. It was all on the page already. They just had to like put it in the actor's hands. It was was so good. Like the dialogue was great. Yeah. I think they did a great job of adapting it. Yeah. Timothy Oliphant, he's good at playing those sheriff types, you know? (laughs) He really is. Yeah. Cause Deadwood too. Right. He's in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Because he's kind of garbage in that zombie show on Netflix, if I'm being honest. <laughs> Is that yeah. the um, the one with Santa, the... Santa Clarita yeah. Diet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm pretty sure he's stoned the whole time. He's a lot more just like yeah. red and glassy. Yeah, the, the, the entire series. I I watched the first two seasons. I guess I shouldn't say the entire series. Maybe he cleans yeah. up his act in the third one. I don't know. Yeah. Well, he's he's also Mickey from Scream Two, right? Yeah. 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 Which was. I watched that recently too. I, I just watch yeah. stuff all the time when I'm supposed to be working. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned, uh, as far as the only good Indians goes, um, mm-hmm. slasher, the, the term slasher came up. And so mm-hmm. the setup is that there's like a, something, these people do something wrong and then something seeking revenge. So, yeah. um, would you say that it's all the way through a slasher or part slasher? To me, it's all slasher because yeah, yeah, you're right. The um, the spirit of vengeance rises to rebalance the scales of justice, you know. And the people who are getting chewed up are people who generally put themselves in harm's way by doing whatever prank or trespass or crime they did ten or twenty years ago, you know. Um, but the the complication, hopefully, with the only good Indians is, is that you care about these characters, hopefully, you know, or I know I did, anyways, and um. Like, you ask yourself, do they really deserve this for what they did, you know? Like, my idea about slashers is that, um, say, a group of kids in sixth grade pull someone on their playground's pants down and shame them in front of the whole school, and then they go on with their lives, but that kid who got shamed by having their pants pulled down they nursed that injury for 
10, 20 years, and it collects a lot of interest over that time, such that, yes, they didn't, I mean, they actually suffered no physical injury. They suffered, you know, social injury, I guess, and probably psychological and emotional injury. But um, over the years, all that interest accrues until it can only come out on the end of a blade, you know? And so they feel completely justified. They've been thinking of nothing but that incident on the playground for the past 10 or 20 years where this this crew that did the deed they moved on to you know other deeds and totally this was just a little bump in the road to them not even that you know which is almost more insulting because it's like you don't know the damage you did to, you did to me yeah exactly yeah um now in this one uh one of the things that happens is lewis uh feels guilt in the moment about mm-hmm. what they did and he mm-hmm promises to i guess honor the elk by using using all of it was that like uh was that his bargaining chip and was it supposed to be like an effective bargaining chip or was that like kind of in his mind or is that spoilery i guess that might be too spoilery but you get what i'm saying yeah that's a really good way to say it um he is kind of engaging in magical thinking there you know he's saying um this this terribleness that I just did to you will be erased if I actually use all of you, you know? And, and yeah, he is the only one of the four for whom this even slightly matters, you know, for the rest of them, it's just a day in the field popping elk, you know, but for him, it it matters. And, um, but the same way for me when I'm hunting, whenever I take an animal, that's the way to me, like when you actually take the animal, that's the sad part of the hunt, you know, because this animal dies and it's, it's terrible, you know? And so I always tell the animals that, that I take that I'm going to use all of them. But in 2008, well, in 2007, I got an elk that season. And then just a few months later, I was moving from Texas to Colorado and had to clean up my freezer. I couldn't move my freezer up to Colorado because we were doing pods and it was going to take a few weeks and everything. And, um, so I had to go up and down the street I live on giving away packages of elk meat to everybody. And that was, you know, I had promised that elk I was going to feed her to my kids and she was going to, you know, make the rounds and be helpful and everything. But then I don't know if that actually happened. I don't know if these people ate the meat or not. And so I guess 10 years after that, the guilt of that, of having had to give all their meat away, finally got to me and I had to write the only good Indians. You know? That's amazing. Wow. I mean, as a as a follow up, everything going okay with you? Yeah, man. Okay, all right, just check it in. I I didn't realize how. I guess we didn't know what the basis of the story was, and I kind of got sucked into that a little bit. Just want to make sure everything's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's all good, man. All right, so um, I I guess (laughs) I don't even know how serious we want to take this next question, but. so did writing this book make you um, afraid of elk, or was that already something that existed? I mean, based on what you just said, I, I feel like uh, that may have already been a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, of an issue. Um, and, you know, it didn't make me afraid of elk, but it did, like, heighten my awareness of our ethical obligation to the animals we hunt, you know, or that I hunt anyways. Um, so it did, I think writing this book did... Um, change my relationship to to big game to elk in particular yeah this is so i'm 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 gonna be very honest i i grew up in the suburbs of chicago and Mm -hmm. aside from some random you know summers or vacations here or there not spending a lot of time out in nature and i've never actually gone hunting so Mm -hmm. where 
Well, I guess where in the general, like, especially, I guess, in the United States or, or culturally does like the respect of the animal land, like, does your average, like Joe Hunter care about that stuff or, uh, or if, if not, who does? No, yeah, your average hunter generally does. And like in order to get your tag or to get your hunting license, you have to pass um, a hunter safety course. And there's always a lot of, um, let's see, you get walked through your ethical obligation to these animals, you know, and how it's not just about going out and um, being a sniper and shooting something a mile away. You know, it's about respecting the animal. And so once you've gone through a course like that, you're supposed to come out as a good sportsman, you know, it doesn't always work that way. Of course. Um, I remember when I was living in Texas, you know, this is probably right before I moved up here, actually, right before I went up, up and down the street, giving away that elk, my neighbors, I'd see them every Friday night and they'd have their truck all outfitted with um, spotlights. And there'd be like six high schoolers and dads in the back of the truck in like combat gear with AR, AR 15s or whatever, you know, those assault rifles are. And, and they'd always say, hey, Stephen, you want to come shoot, shoot hogs with us? Because that's what people in Texas do a lot. They used to go shoot hogs on Friday night. And um, I would always pass up because that seems to me like just amazingly wrong, like just a terrible relationship to have with nature, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, people like that end up with their hunting license as well, of course. And, no, I mean, in any population, any, any room you're in, there's always going to be some people who just don't get it, you know? Yeah, and and, to ch- and I, I, my dad took me hunting as a kid several times, and mm-hmm. from an Eastern European family. So yes, everything you mm-hmm. could use, you use. But yeah. um, yeah. more in answer to like Rob's question, what I find is, I've listened to a few podcasts that have like hunters that like have TV shows and are like famous mm-hmm. hunters, mm-hmm. and they spend more time talking about what you just talked about than they do the the skill or whatever you know the the thrill of the chase is they spend a lot of time talking about the relationship to the animal which i find fascinating and and endearing really if you're going to hear that somebody's going to go out and take down a uh you know an elk or a deer or even pheasant or whatever that there's a meaningful exchange between the hunter and the animal so although i i doubt i'll ever go hunting i i you know have some respect for the people that treat it that way but like anything else right there's also you know the hog shooters i guess on the other side of that who don't take it um as seriously yeah for sure and the guys in the only good indians they have that one bad moment where they don't take it seriously either you know and they should have been better they should have known what to do like you know i guess my example of this would be um, I'm probably 12 years old. I'm on the reservation and I'm, I'm with my uncle Jerry, my great uncle Jerry. And we're, you know, we're just skulking around the woods and, um, I'm carrying the rifle cause the young guy always carries the rifle, of course. And we see about a quarter mile off, um, something laying on the side of a hill and it's, it's brown. It's got a hump on its shoulders and so, and no horns. And so, you know, it's a cow moose and, we spend 45 minutes or so stalking around, being real quiet, getting getting where we could line up a shot. And we get about 30, 30 yards out from her, which is really close. And she's, she catches our scent and stands up, and it's not a cow moose. It's a mama grizzly bear, and she her two cubs pop up out of the grass too, you know? And so she's right there in my scope and my crosshairs, and I'm, like, shaking. And because we had no idea we were close to a bear. We totally thought we were sneaking up on a moose. And, um... And 
then everything blacks out in my scope. And the reason it blacked out was my uncle was standing beside me. He had cupped the end of the scope in his hand and he guided my rifle down and he said, we're not doing this. We're not going to shoot that bear. And, and so in the field that day, everything could have gone wrong for me. I could have tried to take a pot shot at a bear, which generally just makes him mad. You know, um, I was lucky to have someone far wiser with me. And, but these guys, these day, that day, 10 years ago, when they were sneaking into a section of hunting territory that they shouldn't have had access to and shooting in a way they shouldn't have shot, um, they didn't have anybody to tell them you're not, um, exhibiting the proper relationship with these animals. You're not showing the proper respect. You're not doing them any honor. And because of that, they got to pay the price. You know, there's no, I mean, they can say they're sorry, but what does that help? You know, I feel like that came across well in the book and, 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 um, I like how it was kind of set up that there was like a minor trespass that led to a greater trespass. So like just the fact Mm -hmm. that they were hunting in a place where they weren't supposed to be, Mm-hmm. They were already wrongdoers, but then, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, they didn't turn it around yeah. and do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, they're ba- they they're in the elder section. I mean, I know you are trying not to spoil it, but I think I'll, I'll say that. Um, and and so, like, they're committing like a hunting trespass, but then they're also committing an ethical trespass because they're basically taking food off of elders' plates. You know, mm-hmm. so they're both betraying their community and their community's laws at the same time. Um, I don't have a graceful way to go into this next question, so that's uh-huh. my graceful change right here. But um, <laughs> uh, kind of like zooming out. Uh, so the the title of the book is "The Only Good Indians," mm-hmm. and it, it, it comes about later on in the book. What you know, what that means, and why it's why it's a title and everything. But I've noticed that you've caught a little bit of flack online for using that as the title. There was one incident I saw of a, of a reviewer, yeah. a reviewer who kind of went nuts and maybe just was underinformed when they had their, their response. But um, mm-hmm. was that like an isolated incident? Or are you getting much pushback on using that as a title? No, I think that one flare up is all I know about. And, and that I think that that flare up was just about the term Indian. It wasn't even about yeah. the, the, the old saying, you know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Um, but, you know, I mean, they're, they're not wrong. Um, Indian is an imprecise term, you know, right. but um, it's also, I grew up being Indian. And so it's weird for me after 48 years of being Indian to say I'm indigenous now or I'm native, or, you know, whatever. There's, there's so many different terms you can use. Um, so I just, I do use Indian and I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's an imprecise term, but it feels like it's who I am too. So I just run with it. Yeah, because you haven't, uh, you've used, you've said Indian in like interviews and stuff, as opposed to yeah. like other terms yeah. that you could use. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, if I'm going to use another term, I'll use American. Well, I'll, you know, I find myself using native sometimes as an adjective, you know, um, instead of saying Indian, I'll say native because that's what everybody's doing the past probably four years. But um, if I have to use a term like a higher, like I'll probably say American Indian because I like the idea of putting Indian is the noun and American is the adjective as the modifier as the extra, you know? Yeah. It's weird to have something that you grew up as being, that's what we are, or that's what Uh this is to Uh like adjusting to later in life. It's a whole different thing, but like it, it doesn't necessarily take into account the, like 
how ingrained it is into your like the mm-hmm. being of who you are. So it's that was mm-hmm. interesting to think about. Yeah, you have another uh, novella coming out shortly, and I'm kind of prefacing this for the listeners so they understand yep. where my question is coming from. And and Rob and I had the pleasure of reading it. It's called The Night of the Mannequins. We will discuss it uh, probably briefly because it's a novella on a on the later episode closer to its release date. But, but man, the tone of the only good Indians is so different from the tone of Night of the Mannequins. Mm-hmm. So is Night of the Mannequins more fun to write for you because it's a little more, I don't even know if I'm saying this the right way, but almost a little more tongue in cheek than something that I thought was deadly serious in the only good Indians. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think you'll notice. Yeah. I think Night of the Mannequins is kind of, does have a lighter tone because it's got a narrator who is once at 16, 17 years old, but, um, the only good Indians has more like actual jokes, I think, you know? So it's, it's like, I always imagine there's like a, like how to say it. Um, there's always going to be humor or comedy in a piece. And with me, sometimes it comes out in the tone and sometimes it comes out in, you know, Gabe making jokes and the only good Indians or, um, sometimes it can come out in comical imagery, you know, but, I think there's always got to be levity in a piece. If a piece is just depressing, 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 or scary, 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 um, it gets boring really fast, you know? That just reminded me of, I saw, I think it was on Twitter, um, you had linked to one of the reviews of your book where the the, the woman, I can't remember her name, said she had to set it down huh? at a certain point, and I'm assuming it was huh? at the end of the Lewis section. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. Levius, so when we... But when we were reading the book to review um, Only Good Indians, um, Livius was reading it. I think Livius got ahead of me. And he had asked me how far I was. And I was like 25% in. So I hadn't got there yet. And he's like, okay, well, let me know. And then that was one of those texts where like when I got to that point, I was like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Because, man, like <laughs> it, it really ramped up super fast. So you said in response that you actually took a pause to go mm-hmm. write uh, Night yeah. of the Mannequins as an escape yeah. from what was happening in this book. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and you're right. Maybe that's why it's totally different, you know, because I needed to go to a lighter space, but still with a lot of dead bodies, you know? Yeah. And it, it's, I don't know, you know, it's interesting because the lighter tone in Night of the Mannequins, again, I don't want to spoil anything for mm-hmm. anybody. The book's not even available mm-hmm. yet, but it's mm-hmm. funny because Night of the Mannequins, if you, if it was third person narrated would probably be just as dark as the only good Indians, but the narrator changes the tone and then the tone kind of makes it. And look, I really like the books, you know, spoiler. I I really, it's really entertaining. Um, But you know, you you find yourself laughing at things you probably shouldn't be laughing at because of the tone of the book. And and like I said, when I, when I take a step back from that and think about the story, I go, man, this is, this might be even darker than than the only good Indians, but it's, it's definitely told in a way that's chuckle worthy. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it is actually probably a little darker. Like in the only good Indians, the, as terrible as, or as much as we want everyone to live, the kills are nevertheless righteous, you know, whereas that's not necessarily, not necessarily the case in a lot of the mannequins, you know? Night of the Mannequins made me think of so sometimes you read stuff and you're like, oh man, now I want to go back and read this other thing that 
um, I really mm-hmm. enjoyed from the past. And this is this is probably mm-hmm. obscure, and I don't expect you to have heard of it. But Livia said mm-hmm. me and Livia's talked about it on a previous episode. There is a book called uh, "The Summer Is Ended and We Are Not Yet Saved," which is basically yeah, I've read that. Yeah. You read that? Yeah, the Joey. It was from yeah, it was from Cheesy many yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, and obviously, yeah. like vastly different because that's just straight mm-hmm. up like a a bible camp like just mm-hmm. murder murder fest and everything but yeah um yeah. i feel like that there was touchstones that were similar with seeing um the mind of someone who might not be all the way there mm-hmm. kind of interpreting what's going on so um yeah. i like it when i'm inspired by one thing to think about or go back to something that i really enjoyed in the past that's good. Well, thank you. And um, you know, I think uh, right along with that, I would probably put the remake of Maniac that um, Elijah Wood did. You know, I don't know if you've seen that or not. It's it's got a it's got a first person feel to it. Like you're in the mind of the person. You know, it's, it's yeah. really pretty good stuff. Yeah. It's been on my list, and and mostly because of mixed reviews. Like people either mm-hmm. loved that mm-hmm. or hated it. So when when I see a movie like that, yeah. I'm like I. I almost feel like I have to see it just so I can figure out which side yeah. I'm on. Yeah, if everybody sure. loves I think, something, I go, I don't need to yeah. see that. Everybody likes it. I'm sure I'll like it. <laughs> I don't have to make any decisions. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, I think, I think, um, I think a lot of the people who don't like it are possibly coming from a place of trying to protect or defend the original. You know? Yeah, I yeah. can, I can imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're so okay. So that's a good question. Where where do you fall on that? There have been a number of remakes. Do you find that you're mm-hmm. typically in favor of remakes, or or, or do mm-hmm. you shy away or typically dislike no. them? I'm, you know, I'm probably I like more of them than I dislike for sure. Yeah. I find myself I find myself on the the wrong side of that frequently. I mean, the one that comes to mm-hmm. mind most is Old Boy, which was originally a South Korean revenge film that's still yeah. like one of my yeah. top three to maybe five movies of all time. And then I went and saw the American remake, and apparently uh-huh. I was the only person that liked the American remake. I mean, everybody oh, else right. just completely yeah. shit, shit pan that movie. And yeah. I, I, you know, I, I know it wasn't, it certainly isn't in my top 30 movies or 50 movies yeah. of all time, but I've, I found it enjoyable enough. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's weird how people react to, to stuff differently like that. It is. You know, in the original old boy, that scene in the hallway where he's just fighting everybody, that's oh, one of the God. beautifully done scenes of all. Yeah, it's like a seven minute one take yeah. scene or whatever. Yeah. Where he fights 50 guys in a hallway. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. I think um, Daredevil, that Netflix series, I want to say in the first season, they did like, it felt like an homage to that where Daredevil yep. was mm-hmm. just fighting guys in a hallway. It was yep. really well done, too. Yeah. So the, the talk about remakes made me mm-hmm. think about uh, i can't remember we were talking to mallerman recently mm-hmm. and um for the listeners josh mallerman in case you haven't heard of him <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly what the conversation was but like i remember like the impression i had was that he's always curious about how someone's telling the story so um if it's a remake or whatever a reboot i, I don't think that really matters as much to him because he wants to see what they do um, mm-hmm. You know, he wants to just see how they pull it off or if they can pull it off. So mm-hmm. that type of enthusiasm just for, well, what are they doing? I think is, is kind of a helpful approach. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, a lot of people go into remakes with a chip on their shoulder and they're 
they they're paying for the movie just to talk bad about it on social media. You know, and that seems to me like the wrong attitude to take into the art experience. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and <laughs> a terrible way to spend your money and time. I think so. <laughs> I, know. I know. I I try to find something that's you know going to be thought provoking or entertaining. You yeah. know, versus I'm going to watch this thing I know I'm going to hate just so I can say bad things about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody should just do what I do and rewatch Justified over and over again. And <laughs> I'll be happy. Occasionally sprinkle in, here, I'll do it for you. I'll, I'll, I'll do it for you, Rob. And occasionally sprinkle in a rewatch of Hannibal. Yeah. Oh, All right. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you, Livius opened the door, so I'm going to go there. Earlier, when we were talking about hunting, my joke was going to be my only reference is the show Hannibal oh, um, yeah. because yeah. of Garrett Jacob Hobbs in the first season. Mm. Um, but Livius shames me for talking about <laughs> Hannibal so much that I just I bit my tongue. But since he opened the door, <laughs> putting it out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm back after we watched that. I noticed it's on Netflix, on Netflix now. Always rewatch that. Yeah, like if I remember correctly, that like season three is like a short season with Hannibal. Is that right? Yeah, uh well, yeah. no, it was it was split between so half of the the second half of the yeah. season was was the Red Dragon story and the first half was kind of like yeah. Yeah. the aftermath of season 2 and all that, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I remember I could be remembering wrong and this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't watched it possibly. Um at the end it got really like Sherlock not like the show Sherlock, like the mythos of Sherlock, where Moriarty and Sherlock go over Rackenbach Falls together or whatever. Yeah, that have? yeah. And yeah they I, literally go over seemed, a cliff. I know. <laughs> it seemed kind of weird to me, but so I'd much rather there be a season four. You know? Well, and I was talking to someone recently, and I think that, like, in general, people put season two as, like, the high point and then season three yeah. a little bit lower. And I'll agree with yeah. that, but, like... Yeah, yeah. Rewatching season three does um, uh, it, it makes you appreciate it more, but it is almost a hundred percent like the love story of Hannibal and, and Will Graham. Yeah. So anybody who's looking for a procedural crime thing yeah. is out yeah. of luck. So yeah, so that's that. I got to geek out again. <laughs> All right. So you've also got apparently Wait for Night coming out. So we talked a little yep. bit about. Night of the Mannequins. Um, what's Wait for Night about? It's a short story. It's I don't even know how many how many words it is. Maybe four thousand, six thousand. It's um. Well, I don't want to spoil it. It's it's a work crew. They're out cleaning out a creek bed, and they dig up something that probably should not have gotten dug up. That popped up on my radar recently, so I'm excited to get into that. That comes out um, the day the, after uh, Night of the Mannequins, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So Tor's just hitting us with a double <laughs> smack of Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so odd. You would think they would just do it on the same day at that point instead of a day apart. <laughs> I don't know. So um, an interesting thing, uh, you had the short story, Attack of the 50-Foot Indian, come out through uh, the same publisher that did Only Good Indians, right? Yeah. Yep. And the cool thing about that, so first of all, I love the story. Um, oh, thank you. But then, I, as a bonus, I didn't realize, but they put like a sample of the Only Good Indians yeah. at the end of that. So was that a promotional idea from them, or or where did that come yeah. from? Because once I got done reading that story, I got on social media and I was like, "Hey, if you want a preview of this book, go read this story." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it's just like a big long Easter egg in that in that that printing or that digital printing or whatever. But yeah, it was their idea to um, make it a promotional thing. I mean, they were going to publish the story either way, but they decided to bundle in the prologue of the Lincoln Indians, which got a lot of people aware of it. I think. I thought it was a genius idea. Um, and um, again, anybody who who's listening should absolutely check out that story too. I can't imagine it's a short story. I can't imagine it costs much on the Kindle or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like a dollar maybe or something. Is there anything else you're excited about? Like any authors you're reading lately or movies? I know we talked a little bit about TV shows, but what are you excited about? You know, um, one of my favorite books I've read this summer, I guess two of my favorite books I've read this summer. One of them would be the luminous dead by Caitlin Starling. I'm so impressed with that. It's about, um, extended caving expeditions with science fiction like gear on another planet and that to me is just so so cool like caves to me are just super cool anyways but now you've got alien caves and they're massive and there's uh, things down there that we don't have on earth so so cool i love that book um i mean i guess it's probably it gets class science fiction but uh, i might pull it into horror and S.A. Cosby's Blacktop Wasteland. Yeah, um, yeah it was a, such a fun novel. It's uh, That's really the first book I can remember reading in such a long time that feels like a gearhead wrote it, you know? Most most books hmm. I read that are supposed to be about cars and stuff, it feels like um, they stole a few things from Wikipedia or a discussion board or something. But this is someone who... Maybe maybe S.A. Cosby did learn it all, you know, on Wikipedia, but I don't think so. He talks like someone who grew up worshiping these cars like I did, you know, and just imagining going to the gears. Well, we're about to jump over to uh, talking, do some spoiler questions. Um, so I'm going to thank you. Uh, for coming on on our normal episode and then we'll almost immediately start uh, asking you more questions but thanks so much for joining us Um, thanks for um, all the excellent stuff that you have coming out this year it was uh, I always love reading your stuff so I appreciate it was it was like uh, we were talking to Josh Mailerman about how this year seems like it's special for all like the the extra great things that are coming out and having a nice pile of of Jones was definitely part of that so thanks for joining us Thank you all very much. It's always great to talk, and especially to talk about Hannibal and Justified. Always a good time talking with Steven. And I always learn stuff. Like, I learned a bunch of shit this interview. Yeah, I definitely went in expecting some horror talk, and we obviously got the horror talk. But it was nice that we got the, like, the hunting, uh, respecting nature aspect of the conversation that I didn't necessarily think we were going to go that far in depth into, but that was, like, that was really cool stuff, too. Just imagine if we would have revisited basketball. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. Um, We mentioned it at the top of the interview. I'm going to mention it again. If you are a Patreon contributor like David and McKenna are, who are our most recent Patreon contributors, thank you to both of you. You can check out the rest of our interview. Word of warning, please don't listen if you haven't read The Old and Good Indians and you intend to. As a matter of fact, I think Rob starts with like the final page in spoilers. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he starts like right at the end of the book. So uh, if you go there, I guarantee um, that you will hear very, very interesting discussion about The Only Good Indians and some other stuff. But it'll also ruin the experience for you if you plan to read it. 
I'm going to take it one step further. We also spoil his book, Night of the Mannequins, and we actually spoil Paul Tremblay's book, Survivor Song. So if for whatever reason you haven't read that book, just tread carefully when you listen to this interview. Yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> um, um, so that's it uh, for this interview episode. Um, I, I'm not, I'll be honest at this point, I, I'm pretty sure I know what's next. Um, I think it's going to be Mexican Gothic, if, if I'm correct. Is that, is that I'm right, feeling Rob? that way, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be Mexican Gothic, which has been recommended to us by more than one person um, in the last few weeks. That is by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. It's our first outing with this author. Um, I did get a chance to start it today, and, you know, so far so good. We'll see, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Join us next time for that book. And until then, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. <laughs>